Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks to Chris Caffney for Great Voices. And it's about 25 seconds away from 4 o'clock. Jan Bartlett, I'll be here till 5.30. Today, author and historian Brian McKinlay is back from a New Zealand holiday, so we'll be hearing about that, and also about the elections in Canada. David Spriggs in court after offering Peter Dutton a pair of his thongs. An appeal for funds to assist washed-out and destitute refugees in camps in southwest Algeria. Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association will be telling us about the dreadful damage that the storms have done. What Eureka means in 2015, Shirley Winton with the spirit of Eureka. But let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when, when we find someone whose intelligence so overwhelms us, it's difficult to let a week go by without paying a tribute to her or his latest contribution to the wealth of human knowledge. And last week we recall that that someone, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, really put Amnesty International in its place after it had been slightly critical of True Blue Aussies, Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats. These people, our hero raised the level of debate as the machinery of his great mind ground into action, have an ideological opposition to what we are doing. Well, for this week's chapter, Pete kept logic running hot as he toured Syrian refugee camps to handpick the beneficiaries of our international largesse. This puts our critics in their place. This shows that by being cruel, we can be kind. Now, I've paraphrased him a bit, but that's actually what he said. And after meeting real human beings, fleeing the consequences of our clinging to the coattails of our great protector the and very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world invasions, after meeting and displaying his love for dear little children, Pete said, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Well... He meant tent or shanty or something, but it's understandable. He he probably gave them a copy of our policy. So having seen firsthand the human tragedy we have created, you'll now settle the Syrian refugees and perhaps other refugees, Peter, who are now on Nauru and Manus, back in True Blue Aussie. We will not encourage the people smugglers. We will not reward no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people who could have stayed where they were and now benefited from our international largesse. You have to be kind to be cruel, or, or hang on, uh, you have to be, uh, you know. Uh, so you were deeply moved by your visit. Deeply. Uh, I've got a feeling he's going to get a regular gig on the week that was. Then again, the Socialist Party is right up there in the deep thinking department as it attacked poor Pete for his lack of compassion. Uh, So you'd treat these people with compassion, we asked spokesperson Richard Malls, the refugees. Certainly, this is a cruel, heartless government. A Socialist Party shortened ambition government would work much harder to find a third country like 
Papua New Guinea or Indonesia in other people's business or Tasmania, for instance, to resettle these people, these no-proper-papers, illegal, queue-jumping people, uh, whom we so care about. On a similar front, the Socialist Deputy Big Supremo Tani Plibus Sink the Islands was quite properly critical of the government's slightly lukewarm commitments leading up to the Paris Climate Change Conference. So you'd take a much stronger stand, get get stuck into the big polluters. What is your policy? I assure you, we will release our policy before the election after we have consulted the affected parties, consulted the people. No, the polluters. This commitment was emphasised when great left socialist figures like Plibus Sink the Islands and Anthony All's Been Easy sprang to the pre-selection defence of embattled resources spokesperson Gary Gray Skies, telling us how the socialists couldn't afford to lose his unflinching support for uranium extraction and nuclear industry, coal seam gas, fracking and fracking everything in general. Now... Saturday, technical problems meant we were off the air at the week that was time on analogue radio. Those with digital would have heard the Saturday version of this rubbish, but I had intended to drop this Cup Week item, but believe it or not, our listener has requested I leave it in, so with a few minor cuts. And I want to thank the television channel for breaking every now and then its coverage of what the filthy rich and their degrade celebrity hangers-on were eating, drinking and wearing to show a horse or two. Well, that's a bit facetious because there is now a dedicated channel which does show the horses, although can't see what the fuss was all about. There were 37 races for the week and Michelle only won two and she had all of about four rides. Uh, Our friend and I have followed women riders for years and where their strike rate vis-a-vis the number of rides they get leaves the blokes for dead. I think it's in the hands, the feel the horse gets through the hands. And Thursday, so-called Ladies' Day, with the feature for three-year-old fillies, women riders to the fore, no doubt. Well, in that Ladies' Day big race, the number of women riders, yes, exactly naught. But how dare Michelle suggest there's sexism, chauvinism. I raise this to divert from the normal week that was and tell a delightful little story, a story I found delightful at the time. A few years ago at a small bush meeting, it was the Matoa Cup. It's a great weekend. The pub's now closed, I believe, but that Friday night it was the social centre of True Blue Aussie. Anyway, race one, eight starters, two women riders, one a then young woman called Kate Walters. She's since had a kid and is now back riding in that region. And those who know anything about racing know jockeys must treat stewards like they're gods. Bow, scrape, Mr. This, Sir That, never answer back. Never, never answer back. And at those meetings, jockeys used to mount, uh, wander around the mounting yard a bit and, and straggle out to the barrier. But this officious steward yelled, Get them in order, boys! See, he is Sir, they're boys. And like a flash, Kate yelled, And girls! And he was so taken aback that a jockey would dare answer back, he started, oh, and you, Kate. And again she yelled, and there's Nikita too. As far as I know, she was never charged with bringing the industry into disrepute, but she could have been. Well, should have been. I think the steward couldn't believe it, and I thought, how delightful to hear a gutsy young woman standing up against chauvinism. And by the way, Nikita won the race. 
I mentioned my friend and I following women jockeys. Well, he backed Michelle Tuesday, and no marks for guessing who didn't, who jumped off the horse-powered bandwagon. It's going to hurt for a long time. Okay, end of diversion. Although those who know what's good for us want to divert what little the penurious have into the public coffers so the filthy rich can be better off so we can all be better off. Impoverishing the impoverished is the best interest of the impoverished, but then... Why do they bother seeing they don't pay the crippling taxes they claim are not good for all of us anyway? Take transnational resource giant Chev Ruin the Environment, which on 1.7 billion profits in True Blue Aussie paid a crippling $248 tax real figure, point naught 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 one four percent transferring the profits to its US of world base where due to technical difficulties which must cause mass depression in the Chev Ruin the Environment boardroom lands there as tax free. So any wonder we have to increase the regressive tax that hits the impoverished to save the very not impoverished from such pain. Well, those who know what's good for us also know that government involvement, the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector, in any service that turns over a neat little profit, must be privatised to enjoy the benefits of the lean, mean hand, the super-efficient hand of the private sector, to reduce prices, to benefit the public. And those who do make it through the congestion to the airport have been hit with a new welcome to monopoly parking sign. The exorbitant parking fees up by another exorbitant 67%. Uh, but when you were privatised, you know, we were told it was part of competition world's best practice on the great level playing field policy. And it is. They could always drive a bit further to our competition down the road and park at Sydney Airport. Although that's no cheaper. They're currently widening the privately owned road to the airport yet again. Remember they promised we could do Danny Nong to the airport in 36 minutes? And it may be possible at 3am. But those Vic Roads engineers and therefore the government puppets they instruct know that money would be wasted building unnecessary infrastructure like a, a railway line on which Ministers Josh Prydem Workersburg and Andrew Rob the Poor lined up with some of the world's biggest good corporate citizens, including the Brazil-based world's biggest beef producer and the Chinese new owner of the Port of Darwin, who wants to invest in northern True Blue Aussie resources to ship through their new acquisition, to announce a $5 billion, true figure, $5 billion government fund to encourage these altruists to develop northern True Blue Aussie seems they can't just rely on market forces. Well, again, $5 billion to entice the biggest companies in the world. Any wonder the poor must pay more tax. Thankfully, what they do pay won't be wasted on them. Finally, congratulations to the Turkish government for winning overwhelmingly an election many thought would be close, although the government was so confident it was able to announce the results, the surprise results, in evil terrorist Kurdish areas where it was thought it might poll pretty ordinarily, for instance, even before the votes were counted. It shows the 100% in those areas who oppose us are a minority. The silent majority has spoken. Hang on, maybe that's the silenced majority. Good afternoon.
And thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy for his week that was. And tune in tomorrow morning at 9am when Kevin with Corey Green present City Limits for one hour between 9 and 10am. If you were wondering where historian and author Brian McKinlay had got to over the last while, this explains. Today, Jan, I'm going to do something a bit unusual, look at events in two countries, one of them concerning myself and another concerning a major political event, and those countries are New Zealand and Canada. Now, I've just returned with my wife from a holiday in New Zealand, and I had the unusual experience of having gone there as a young man nearly 60 years ago with a friend, and he and I spent a whole summer wandering around camping, backpacking, hitchhiking in the, uh, the 1950s. And then all these years later, I've returned to see New Zealand through fresh eyes because when I went there as a young man, about 20 years of age, I had no experience of travel. And in the meantime, I've traveled widely. And I mean, it suddenly occurred to me this time that bits of New Zealand look like bits of Scandinavia bits of Switzerland uh, and all those comparisons, partly bits of Scotland in the south that I could make that I couldn't have made when I was a young man and hadn't travelled. Um, and New Zealand is a, a lovely place, beautiful f- physically and a peaceful, happy country in a sense, if that's possible. I said to a New Zealander that I talked with, I like New Zealand because it's a friendly, inoffensive little country. He didn't know whether to be very pleased with my comment about it being inoffensive, but I pointed out that most of the world's problems come from very large countries. As a former teacher, it was always a certain type of large, boisterous, bullying boy who caused trouble in your classrooms. Well, New Zealand isn't one of those countries. It's, um, I suppose you'd say, a social democracy. It's a rich first world country like Australia. They have some real achievements in the matters of race because it struck me 60 years ago and it struck me recently that New Zealand, which has, a, as you know, a large Maori population, large by contrast with our own indigenous people, Maoris make up about 16% of the New Zealand population. About 4% of New Zealanders are actually Pacific Islanders. There's quite a migration into New Zealand of people from countries like Tonga and Fiji. I know we had the experience uh, using a cable car in Wellington. A young man and his wife with two children, two boys, uh, were sitting down and the cable car was crowded and we got on and it, it, we were standing and he made his two boys give up their seats for us and that was very nice and I thanked them and uh, we got into conversation and later met them in the botanical gardens and I thought he was Maori actually but he turned out to be a Fijian as was his wife and family <clears throat> and he told me he had a job office in New Zealand and had come from Fiji. Apparently Pacific Islanders from Tonga or other islands, which are in a sense under New Zealand protection, the Cook Islands, a small group that depends largely on tourism is one of them, uh, they have a fairly easy entry into New Zealand. So about 4% of New Zealanders are actually Pacific Islanders, which 
means that generally they're of the same racial stock as the Maoris, who long ago were a Polynesian people who came to New Zealand. Um, and so about 20% of the population of New Zealand could be described as coloured, to use that old-fashioned word. Now, that's a fairly substantial group. It's larger than the black population of the United States, which is about 12 or 13%, and Hispanics in the United States are about the same. Uh, I don't think Australian Indigenous people would amount to more than 2 or 3% of our population. So <clears throat> New Zealand has had that situation since first settlement, and in the, in, in the early stages, the Maoris, after some problems with the British, as all colonial powers do, the Maoris were able to get in the Treaty of Waitangi certain guarantees of property and of their rights, uh, limited though these were, and that has given them a much stronger position in New Zealand than our Indigenous people ever had. The upshot of this is you see Maori people occupying every sort of position in New Zealand, a thing you don't see in Australia with our Indigenous people. I can't remember seeing an Indigenous man or woman in Melbourne in recent years in sort of senior executive positions in areas like banking or finance or the public service. Uh, but in New Zealand, you do see that. I think there is a good deal of lower-class poverty among some of the rural Maoris. We went from Auckland, about four hours north, to the Bay of Islands, which those of you who've been there will know is just one of the most beautiful places in New Zealand. And New Zealand has a lot of beautiful landscapes. And the Bay of Islands is, a, as the name implies, a cluster of more than 100 islands, big and small, in a series of beautiful bays. We stopped there the best part of a week at a place called Pahia. If anyone is listening and thinking of going to New Zealand, do stop in Pahia, a bit like Lawn in a way, a pleasant little town with all the facilities, and you can do trips around the lake from there. But coming back and going up on the bus anyway, we went both ways by bus, um, and it's about four hours north of Auckland, I noticed areas where there were lots of small, smallish farms Obviously, in small towns, it seemed, just looking at the town from the bus and people on the street, to seem to have quite a large Maori population. And I think probably there's a good deal of sort of low-income, not poverty, but uh, that sort of rural condition that's common in places in Australia, where people eke out a living rather than go off to the cities. And that might be true of our Indigenous population in places like Western Australia. But certainly the Maoris in New Zealand are a very prominent and notable feature of what is a fairly successful racial absorption. Now, I thought this 60 years ago when I first went to New Zealand, and I came back with that impression again. At the moment, New Zealand has a Conservative government led by Keyes. It's very critical of the Australian governments of recent times for its treatment of New Zealanders here. Uh, there are about three quarters of a million New Zealanders because the Australian wage levels are higher and if you have certain skills, you're simply going to earn more money in Australia. For instance, the um, average wage in New Zealand, uh, the minimum, I should say, the minimum wage, 
is uh, ours is about 17 bucks and in New Zealand it's about 14 dollars so there's about a three dollar difference so a person doing fairly unskilled labor in New Zealand will be getting about three dollars an hour less than their counterpart in Australia and I think the same would apply at the top end that the wages paid to people in highly paid jobs here perhaps in the computer industry and so on be higher in Australia so there is that um, uh, drain of people to Australia from New Zealand uh, the New Zealand authorities have all sorts of arguments with Australia. At the moment, New Zealanders have got into trouble with the law involving a year or more jail sentence are being deported by the federal government. And some of these are pretty tragic cases. I saw one on the New Zealand tally, which I think has been featured here, of a young woman, middle-aged woman, in, in her, uh, a New Zealander who came here with her mother and her husband married and, and had four children who are Australians but she got into trouble with theft some time ago from an employer and she got a year's jail now she's being deported her mother is supporting the four youngish children the husband has gone off somewhere and she's in a pretty desperate condition she'll have to go back to New Zealand look for work her mother will have to go with her because she'll have no one else to look after the kids. And um, as well as this, quite a few New Zealanders in this condition uh, have been put into Christmas Island. And I noticed that was mentioned in the reports today in the press of rioting there. Now, that's caused a great deal of anger in the New Zealand press. When uh, Turnbull went there, he was there while we were there, and uh, Keyes, the Prime Minister, and he had a very exchange on the media several of the newspapers had major editorials attacking Australia's policies towards New Zealand in general and saying that the sort of stuff that Australian leaders say about New Zealand you know they're our best friends and our closest neighbours and cousins and all that is just crap and the New Zealand papers could hardly have been more forthcoming uh, of course, the New Zealanders are in the unhappy situation that there's nowhere else to go. Uh, we are the only first world neighbour they have. And their old relations with Britain and the United States have sort of petered out a bit. Although I noticed this week Prince Charles is there because New Zealand's still a monarchy and part of the British Commonwealth. Interestingly, though, they're conducting a referendum, which you'll undoubtedly see in the media here, in the next few weeks on adopting a new flag. They've had five options, and we picked up a brochure in a post office, uh, had five coloured pictures of the five flags suggested. No one knows which one will win. Uh, I suspect they might come up with a rather striking flag with a silver fern, which is the national floral emblem, a beautiful fern, and this silver fern on a yellow background would be quite striking. Now, that's because many New Zealanders, as many people do, have admired the beauty of the Canadian flag with its uh, maple leaf, picked for Canada without any referendum or anything else by an earlier Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau. And uh, he decided overnight that Canada would have a new flag and put it to his cabinet and they introduced it immediately. 
and it's nobody today even remembers, I think, what the old Canadian flag with the Union Jack on it looked like. Well, that's the case in New Zealand. <clears throat> Interestingly, in New Zealand, all the obvious conservative groups, ex-servicemen's groups, for instance, are arguing that they want to keep the Union Jack. That's exactly the sort of argument we would get here if we had a similar referendum. Though, oddly enough, Key's government seems far less conservative and the New Zealand Parliament also than our present government in Canberra. For instance, a couple of years ago, the Parliament voted for legalising same-sex marriage. And uh, the thing on the flag, uh, the, the decision, uh, when, the, when the people pick in this first plebiscite one of the five options, that will go to a second referendum next year in which they will be asked, do you want this, this new design as our national flag or do you want to keep the old one? And, of course, conservative groups are campaigning to keep the old one. In fact, the Return Services League, whatever they're called there, I think it's association, urged their supporters to deface their ballot paper on the first referendum where you have five options. And that was promptly criticised by the Prime Minister, who said that was no way to behave in a mature democracy. So the New Zealand Conservative government is much less conservative in many ways than the Australian government has been, certainly under Tony Abbott. I mean, we know Malcolm Turnbull's a Republican, so that's a very great change. But uh, the debate about the flag is interesting, and I lead on from that to looking at the question of Canada. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, and this is Jan Bartlett, and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time, and I'm speaking with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Canada is an interesting country. Um, again, I was in Canada some years ago. The interesting thing about Canada is the curious relationship they have with the United States of America. After all, they're neighbours physically. I remember in Vancouver, my wife and I had lunch in a park where there was... Um, a nice place selling food and we sat at a table nearby on a beautiful day and um, Vancouver is a lovely city. The place was crowded and a middle-aged Canadian guy came up and asked if he could share our table. He couldn't find anywhere to sit. So that was good because uh, he sat with us and we had an interesting conversation and we have a son who with his family lives in the United States. So when we go there, we always um, travel as well as seeing our, our um, son and his wife and our 11-year-old, 150% American grandson, who has, uh, among other things, a terrible Chicago accent. But anyway, the Canadian and I got into conversation and uh, he, uh, my wife remarked to him that we always were amused in the United States how little the Americans actually know about Australia. All the talk of being buddies and allies and all that sort of thing falls down when you hear the sheer ignorance of many people in the United States. And they're not all ignorant, but some are about Australia. My son had the funny experience of driving one day through Mississippi. Now, the deep south is almost like a third world country. And he was a bit alarmed at looking for somewhere to stop overnight. 
and eventually they found what seemed like a fairly safe motel in a decent little town and he stopped there. And when he checked in at the desk and got a room and they asked about his car, oh, and they, I don't know how it came up, but they, they noticed his accent, of course, and the woman said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Australia. And she said, did you drive here? Which absolutely left my son, who's seldom left to words, absolutely staggered. She must have thought Australia was somewhere near Mexico, perhaps. Uh, the idea that he might have driven from Australia was too bizarre to contemplate. Now, this Canadian made the remark to my wife. Uh, she said about living next door to the United States. He said, my dear, it's like living next door to Homer Simpson, <laughs> which summed it all up, really. And uh, she said, well, they don't know much about us Australians. He said, they don't know much about us, and we're their next-door neighbours. So there's that very sharp division between Canadians and the United States in those attitudes. Canadians, of course, as you may know, hate to be mistaken for Americans. It's the ultimate insult. Canada has had a different political system to Australia right from its inception. And in the 19th century, when Canada, ahead of Australia, became what was known as a dominion of the British Empire and self-governing, uh, there were two parties, exactly on the British model of the time. There was a Conservative Party and a Liberal Party. And the Liberals were the party of the left. Uh, in Quebec especially, which is overwhelmingly French-Canadian, and that is a marked difference in Canada to Australia, uh, everything, of course, is written in two languages, and uh, there's been a long-standing separatist movement which has never achieved its aims in Quebec and which has faded away nowadays. The Liberals always dominate Quebec because the Liberals are always seen as the party least wedded to the British connection, whereas the Conservatives, as you might expect, were always monarchists and empire loyalists. Now, that drove the French-Canadian voters into the arms of the Liberals and the Liberals picked up the working-class vote, rural voters, and, and some urban voters. So in Canada, you had this two-party system long before World War I. Now, in modern times, post-World War II, a third party has grown up, which is a party of the centre-left, really. It's not exactly a Labour party. It doesn't call itself that. It calls itself the New Democrats. Now, the New Democrats arose from the actions of some of their supporters <clears throat> when they were a very small group in the state of Saskatchewan where there'd always been a large cooperative movement and the farmers and workers too in the cities in Saskatchewan supported a, a body called the cooperative movement which became a political party and then later changed its name to New Democrats. And they, in fact, they won government in Saskatchewan and in, for a while in British Columbia. That's where Vancouver's the capital. And they gradually spread nationwide. They've never had the links with the trade union movement that the Australian and New Zealand Labour parties and the British Labour Party had. But they are a party of the left in their policies. And they've grown from a very small number to quite a substantial uh, group. In the last parliament, they had 80 seats. 
in a parliament of some 300, uh, I think it's 320, uh, so they were uh, um, becoming and have become a major political force. They always ally themselves with the Liberals if there are coalitions or support Liberal governments if the Liberals, who are the larger party, uh, had a hold on power but a very narrow numbers in a parliament and Canada has a federal and provincial parliaments just like us. Now the uh, New Democrats, the Liberals and the Conservatives in this present election held a few weeks ago in which the Conservatives suffered a crushing defeat. Uh, in the polls running up to election day, a week beforehand say, the New Democrats were shown as polling nearly as strongly as the Liberals both of them getting about 30-odd percent, and the Conservatives about 30. Now, at the previous elections, the Conservatives won a huge victory, and there was an enormous swing against them. Now, Harper, the Conservative Prime Minister, was a dead-spit image of our Tony Abbott. He was a Conservative on all sorts of issues, from same-sex marriage to his passionate support for Israel to his support for military intervention in the Middle East, and a whole lot of issues, uh, also economic issues, uh, austerity, cuts in social security, cuts in the national health scheme. And actually Canada has a pretty good national health scheme. It's not like the United States where Obama's pretty poor effort, uh, well, it, Obama was stymied by the Congress, uh, is pretty poor really. But in Canada the system is not all that different from the Australian National Health Scheme and um, public hospitals are free and you can get bulk billing and all sorts of things. Now, Harper was attacking this, as the Liberals here will do when they get the opportunity. That made him enormously unpopular. And oddly, in the last week of the campaign, the three parties were running level. But about 8 or 9% of those who said they were going to vote for the New Democrats, the left of centre party, changed their mind in the last week of the campaign and opted to vote for the Liberals. Now, the experts put this down to the fact that many New Democrat voters, and Canada, by the way, doesn't have proportional representation or preference voting as we have. So you can get an electorate where the Conservatives might have got only a third of the vote, but would win the seat because the New Democrats and the Liberals would each get a third, perhaps, but just less than the, Liberal, than the Conservatives. And so the Conservatives could win a seat with only a third of the vote. So many New Democrat voters obviously took fright, and about a third of their voters in the last week suddenly switched to voting Liberal, which gave the Liberals nearly 40% of the vote. The New Democrats about 20% and about 40-odd seats and dealt a smashing blow to Harper's Conservatives. And unexpectedly, the Liberals, after quite a term in opposition, have come back to power with an absolute majority, quite a substantial majority, in the Canadian Parliament. Canada has two houses, like us, but the Senate is nominated, basically, by the government uh, over a period of years, so it's of little importance. So the, the Liberals now take office in Canada with a fairly interesting policy program. For instance, the new pr Prime Minister, by the way, is called Trudeau, and he's the son of the other Trudeau I mentioned earlier, Pierre Trudeau, who introduced the change in the flag 40 years ago. Trudeau and father and son were 
both reformers really. Now, Trudeau, in, within days of being elected last week, telephoned Obama to tell him that Canada would withdraw immediately from what he called the civil wars of the Middle East. Now, Canada really only had an air squadron there, uh, which had been bombing Syria, and had some support troops uh, to guard its air base. But they were withdrawn within days and have gone. That is a marked change in foreign policy. Uh, he telephoned Obama to tell him of this because he intended to do it immediately. There was no time for formal letters and statements. Uh, he's announced that he's, for the first three years his government will run in a deficit. No argument about the sort of nonsense we got from the last Labor government here about when it would achieve a surplus and how it was going to do that. He says we're going to operate at a deficit and we're going to borrow to fund social security, public works and the health system. These are all major uh, initiatives and, and uh, a country of the size of Canada, a major state, has shown that it will not accept the austerity provisions that have been foisted on us all around the world since the global financial crisis. This is a most important event, really, and um, may well prove enormously popular in Canada for Trudeau. Uh, he's made it clear that those things that Harper had under attack will now not be attacked, like the health scheme, and that Canada intends to uh, follow a different foreign policy to that of the United States. And indeed, he made it clear in another statement that um, where he sees American foreign policy, say, towards China uh, or in the Middle East, as being threatening to Canada or to world peace, uh, he will not go along with that. Um, and to some extent, the Canadian-American military alliance appears to be pretty nearly dead. This is all remarkable stuff if you contrast it with the endless uh, support for United States policies, both by Labor and Liberals in this country, only the Greens ever raise a, a murmur about uh, the, our alliance with the United States. But interestingly too, he is saying, well, all this austerity stuff is over. And what he's adopting in Canada is a, a, a late 1930s, well, a modern version of a late 1930s Keynesian economic policies. Most of you listeners will be very familiar with Maynard Keynes' economic theories that governments should spend and run up deficits in times of economic problems. In the 1930s, this was seen as an absolute heresy. Here in Australia, Keynes's idea, Keynesian ideas were damned by the government of the day, by Joe Lyons. Uh, yet, uh, post-World War II, uh, the Chifley Labor government adopted Keynesian policies and right through until pretty recently, even the Liberals, Menzies, always was a Keynesian. Now, uh, the global financial crisis eight years ago has turned the Conservatives back to those old-fashioned austerity programs and even the non-economic laymen and people like you and me can see that if governments cut spending, they must affect employment. And that was what Keynes 
argued that the only way that governments can help the economy is to spend money so it creates employment in tough times. So this is going to now be the policy of Trudeau's new government in Canada. And I think the events in Canada will be rather more interesting than has been the case in the past. And it's interesting, of course, that uh, Harper, the great mate, great friend of Tony Abbott's, because whenever they met, when they were Prime Minister, conferences and so on, the two of them were all over each other like a rash. And I remember Abbott in one speech saying how close Harper's policies were to his. Well, in the matter of three or four months, Abbott and Harper are both gone. And it's an interesting comment on uh, both Canadian and Australian politics. Finally, two comments that are interesting, I think. Harper, early in his career, made it plain that he had looked around the world and the politician, the statesman, whatever you like to call them, uh, whom he most admired at the time, was John Howard. Howard was just the sort of conservative that Harper liked. And, of course, Abbott later took up this close friendship which Abbott had had with Harper at the beginning of his career, and uh, the two uh, had come together uh, as friends. It's interesting to speculate how this new Canadian foreign policy will affect American policy, because except, oddly enough, 30 years ago when Trudeau was Prime Minister, the Canadians have followed a pretty common policy with the United States, especially on the Middle East, as we have. Uh, but Harper, and Harper particularly, because he was a great friend of the Israelis, and in fact he was bitterly accused by Canada's Middle Eastern people, and there's quite large populations in Canada of Middle Eastern migrants of being uh, anti-Islamic in a sense. Uh, but now we will see Trudeau government move away from that closeness to the United States. And there's nothing much Obama can do about it. Obama wasn't critical of the Canadians, I might say. Uh, the Republican maddies in the United States have been furiously attacking Trudeau, but that serves no purpose at all. Canada is, after all, a large independent country. And uh, it will be interesting to see in the days ahead whether any Australian politicians, especially in the Liberal Party, note what's happening in Canada. And that was historian and author Brian McKinlay, and it's great to have him back. And he had such a lovely holiday. I think he always has a lovely holiday when he goes overseas. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. The time is 4.42. Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are at it again, and they're still using Islamophobia to divide us. Next, they'll blame Unionists, First Nations people, women, LGBTIQA people, people of colour, the list goes on. They've organised another rally to promote their hate speech, and we're going to stop them. Rally on Sunday, November 22nd, to remind these thugs that they'll always lose in Melbourne. For more information and to get details on the rally, text subscribe to 0422 726 843. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. <laughs> 
Work is united. Never be defeated. Work is united. We'll overcome. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton got more than he bargained for when he gave a speech at a citizenship ceremony in Brisbane in June. A pair of shoes. Last week, the thrower of the shoes, Queensland refugee advocate David Spriggs, spent last Tuesday in the Brisbane Magistrates Court to answer a charge of being a public nuisance. I spoke with David last week and asked him first about that day back in June, how it began, were there other advocates there for asylum seekers? Uh, yeah, there were. Not many. <laughs> Not many at all. There was um, some people from RAC were there. Did you have any plans of what you might do that day or was it spontaneous? Uh, it was sort of spontaneous but it was sort of planned. It was uh, somewhere between. Tell us what happened. Oh, like I heard that Peter Dutton was going to be there. And I thought, oh, you know, I could do something. Well, I was talking to some friends about it and, and the idea came up. Sorry, I'm arguing as to whether I should, should do it or not. And, sure. and, yeah, I bought a bag full of songs with me. I was going to throw some songs. Yeah, I got there and uh, it was a rack, but I wasn't interested at all. The possibility of getting in charge was just something that they weren't really up for. I went and sat in the, amongst the audience and, um, yeah, I just wasn't sure whether I was going to do it or not, but I don't know. I just did. <laughs> Why did you choose shoes? Oh, uh, because of the, um, the Iraqi journalist that threw his shoes at George Bush and, and uh, there have been other, lots of other shoes throwing incidents um, around the world. India, in Australia, Peter Gray threw his shoes at... Um, John Howard, because of his support of the Iraq, the Iraq War. So yeah, it was. I guess it was just inspired by them, and, and also it just yeah, it was quite it was quite a symbolic act. And what was the reaction in the room when you did it? Yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I have no idea. After I threw the shoes, I, I yelled, I yelled out things like "Free the children, release the refugees, out of Manus Island, out of Nauru, free them." And um, yeah, my heart was racing. I wasn't really. I'm taking in what was going on around me. Yeah, you know, I got escorted out of there by the police. But according to the police, people were alarmed and looked concerned. Did you hit him? No, no, my shoes didn't hit him, uh, not directly. Uh, one of them hit the um, like the lectern, and the other one hit the top of the lectern and bounced off and, um, and hit him. Um, well, he kind of caught it. What happened at the police station? Oh, uh, just the usual kind of watch house procedures. And what was the charge? Public nuisance. Is that what you expected? i sure what charge I'd get when I did it. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't really heard of, heard of public nuisance before. Did the media take up your story? 
Yeah, they did. Unfortunately, I didn't get the footage. Uh, there was this one photographer that we got onto. Like he missed me throwing the shoes, so he only got the kind of the kind of aftermath of um, me yelling out some things. And there was no footage. I think it was the immediate kind of reach was was very limited. It was only kind of online news articles. Uh, I don't think there was anything in print. There was nothing on the news. I'm not sure how much there was on radio. I know there was heaps of stuff on social media. Did you get a chance to speak to the media? Or? Oh, I did afterwards, actually. Yeah, I got out of the watch house and, um, and spoke to the media. Were they sympathetic or were they hostile to you? They were, like, sympathetic. They want to cover any kind of resistance to um, you know, the treatment of refugees and stuff like that. We'll move forward to last Tuesday. How was your day in court? What happened? Did you have a barrister? No, I represented myself, and it was the first time representing myself, and you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I didn't even, I wasn't even that clear on the like the different parts of the court process. Did you have a chance to speak for yourself? Not really. I mean, whenever I said something political, I just got shut down, and then because because I got shut down like two, or, two or three times, I just kind of didn't really know what what I could say and what I wasn't allowed to say, and yeah, it was a bit hard. The prosecution's argument was that um, it was disorderly conduct. I don't know, there's kind of four different kind of words that, that constitute public nuisance. And it's kind of like violent, threatening, something else, abusive or offensive and then disorderly. And so the prosecution's argument was that I was disorderly. She found you guilty? Yeah, yeah. And what was the penalty? I was a $1,000 fine, no conviction. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot but I'm not going to pay it, so it doesn't matter. And what will that mean for you? Oh, nothing for for a while, I don't expect. If I get more fines and it builds up, then they might might start to try and, try and chase me up, and that's when I can consider doing something like community service. Yeah, I can just approach Spur, probably work something out there. You don't regret what you did? Oh, of course not. Yeah, in sentencing, I, I asked the, the magistrate, like, what? I wasn't sure what to say. I'm like, oh, is there any other considerations for sentencing? And she said remorse. And I said, oh, yeah, don't feel any of that. And that was David Spriggs, who had his day in court last Tuesday in Queensland, following throwing a couple of thongs at Peter Dutton, and they missed. As world leaders meet in Paris for the United Nations Climate Summit, we, the people, will gather across Australia and march alongside people in hundreds of major cities around the world to create the largest climate rallies in history. On the evening of Friday the 27th of November, the Australian Conservation Foundation urges you to join us at the State Library of Victoria at 5.30pm. From here on in, we're all in. Australian Conservation Foundation is a 3CR supporter. It seems that when you're down, it doesn't rain, but it pours. And that's exactly what has occurred in recent weeks in the Western Sahara refugee camps in southwest Algeria. Today it's an appeal for listeners to do what they can to assist and I'm joined by Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. 
Kate, we're talking about remote desert camps which have been home to Western Saharan refugees for 40 years. How often does it rain? Yeah, once in a blue moon, as they say. Um, since I've been aware of the Saharawi situation, I can remember three or four times when it's rained. I think there was in the mid-1990s. I can't remember another one until 2006, but there could have been one then in between. But this is by far the worst that they've had, well, more or less in living memory, probably 50 years at least, it is being said. And what sort of rainfall was there? I don't think I've seen an estimate of how many millimetres, but it's continued to rain for over a week, and it was heavy torrential downpours, uh, which is pretty bad in most places, but it's absolutely catastrophic in their situation because like any desert that that is dry for most of the time, there are riverbeds, wadis, and those then fill up with rain, which then flood, and those have made a lot of roads unpassable and communications have been difficult. They do have metalled roads now between some of the camps. There are four main camps in that area. One of them is quite distant, 200 kilometres away. And that is the one that was worst hit. It's called Dakhla, after the city in the south of Western Sahara. The other thing that is catastrophic is that they don't have enough tents. They're supposed to have tents provided by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, but only some families have tents. So they build buildings out of mud bricks, which they dig out of their sand and they dry off in the sun and they work fine 90% of the time. But as soon as it gets wet, because they haven't been fired in a kiln, they just crumble and melt under the rain. Most of the families have got kitchens and bathrooms and living rooms in this uh, kind of structure and those have all collapsed. Then uh, they've lost their personal belongings, they've lost food stores, the schools were too dangerous for the children to attend because even if the roof was still on, they were frightened it might collapse at any time. So the children couldn't go to school and at least one hospital is completely out of action. Just remind us, Kate, how many people we're talking about. It's said that they've that, that the floods have affected 40,000 people, but there's over 100,000 living in the camps. And I would have thought that one way or another has actually affected everybody. I think it's 40,000 that, that are homeless, completely homeless. And nowhere to shelter if you've got a week of rain. Well, that's the problem, you see. In the past, the other thing with the other episodes that we've uh, witnessed, it's hit one camp worse than another. And so the the least affected can help the others and they can take in families to sleep with them and look after them. But this time, everybody's affected. That's made it much more critical to get aid, humanitarian aid, to the uh, refugees as soon as possible. The other thing that's quite critical is that the latrines have collapsed. And so the water that's on the ground is liable to be contaminated. 
there were some pictures of children splashing around and having a wonderful time because it's something that they don't normally get to experience. But the first days it was probably safe enough, but now it would be very dangerous for those children to be playing in water. Does the Algerian government assist in situations like this? Yes, they usually do. I mean, usually the uh, Algerians will come up with some temporary tents and things like that. I'm actually not aware of exactly what contribution they've made this time, but I'm pretty sure they will have done something. The report that I read was about the aid agencies who made a joint visit together with the Sahrawi ministries of health and relevant other relevant ministries to look at what was happening on the ground. And so that was like the UNHCR, the World Food Programme, Oxfam, ECHO, the European aid that provides a lot of the food and so on. They were going to airlift, immediately airlift tents and uh, water blankets and things like that in to the camps. And of course it's going to be long term, isn't it? And it is long term because the, the people, there's no way the people there can be self-sufficient. Exactly. That, it shows that the, it does tend uh, highlight how unviable the whole situation is and how much more urgent it is for the conflict to be resolved and for the refugees to be able to uh, have a referendum of self-determination and go home and you know put an end to this exile in the desert which has been you know so so difficult what are you asking people here in australia to do uh well we've launched an appeal the australia western sahara association's launched an appeal through afida the union aid abroad organization and you can go to their website aphedda.org.au And on that front page, you'll see an appeal to assist the flood relief in the Sahrawi refugee camps and a little button that says donate now. So if anyone feels moved to donate, that's the best way to do it. It'll take you through to a page where you choose option C, which is one-off donation, and you scroll down to Western Sahara. The end of November, we will uh, gather up all the donations that have been made and send them to the Sahrawi Red Crescent, which is the their equivalent of the Red Cross, which will use it. Because the, the huge problem is that already the international donations for humanitarian aid were much below the target. They were only they've only received 20% of the promised and needed allocation for humanitarian aid to the refugee camp. So you can imagine that, I mean, we know that there are refugees all over the world and they are all very needy, but clearly something like the Syrian disaster has siphoned off money that the Saharis were expecting. So it is particularly appreciated to send aid now to fund this operation, this rescue operation. And as you said, the the answer or one of the major answers is to close down these camps and give people the chance to participate in a referendum. Where is that at the moment? Sort of glimmers of hope. The Secretary-General of the UN, uh, Ban Ki-moon, has said he will visit the camps. He 
hasn't uh, in his role as as, uh, as secretary general he hasn't been to the camps before and so therefore it's it's quite a long time since they've had somebody as senior as him there Christopher Ross is his personal envoy and he has been more than once trying to open up uh, peace talks with the Moroccan government and visiting the refugee camps as well as other neighbours like Algeria and Mauritania and other kind of stakeholders like Spain because Spain has still formally in law got the responsibility for its former colony. That is a good sign that Ban Ki-moon would come. Meanwhile, the Moroccans are being as defiant as ever. The King Mohammed VI has just marked the 40th anniversary of what is known as the Green March when Morocco invaded Western Sahara. They would say reclaimed their country. He has been to El Ayun, the capital of occupied Western Sahara, made a very provocative speech, which is, you know, in words, doing exactly what the Green March did in deeds and what the military invasion did, claiming his right to exploit the natural resources of Western Sahara and claiming that the uh, southern, what they call their southern provinces, provinces are equally part of their country as the northern part. So he completely ignores international law, the International Court of Justice, the United Nations, and their hundreds of re- resolutions and, um, and claims it without um, unequivocally and, and without any uh, questions to be opened. So it's still going to be a very uphill struggle to bring them to a position, negotiating position, where they would agree to a referendum. Another way people can learn about the situation is a film which is showing here, and I believe it's worldwide, Life is Waiting. That's it, and, and we've got that coming up. Uh, on the 18th of November, Wednesday the 18th, called Life is Waiting, Referendum and Resistance in Western Sahara by a filmmaker called Yara Lee. She's got an interesting background uh, of uh, Brazilian and Korean mixed background. And her film company is called Cultures of Resistance. So therefore we couldn't resist, as I said, uh, holding it at the Resistance Centre which is on level 5, 407 Swanson Street, right in the centre of town opposite RMIT's Story Hall. There will be food at 6pm and the film will be screened at 6.30 on Wednesday the 18th. Everybody's welcome and we'd like to have a good discussion afterwards as well. Okay, Kate, thanks for that. Good. And that is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and um, the web page is a feeder. If you just queue in APHEDA, it will come up on their homepage. And the film next next Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock or 6.30 at 407 Swanson Street, level 5. There's a lift goes up to the fifth floor, a really old, lovely old building in Swanson Street in the city.
This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. How many younger people know what happened in Ballarat 160 years ago on the 3rd of December? Is history still being taught in our schools? And more to the point, whose history is it? Shirley Winton, part of the group Spirit of Eureka, is determined to keep that spirit alive by carrying on the fight for a just, democratic and sovereign Australia. And on the 25th of November, there's a night to celebrate and mobilise. Shirley, take us back to Ballarat in 1854 and the events leading up to the 3rd of December. 1854, there's in Ballarat and also in Bendigo, big gold rush. You had a situation where a lot of the miners, well, there's a lot of poverty there. Most of them came from poor backgrounds, from Ireland, from England and from different parts of Europe and also America. Uh, Some of them were ex-convicts. Others were sort of like free transport. A lot of them brought with them ideas from overseas, that is, you know, particularly the ex-convicts were exiled to Australia and many of them were on political ground. So you had the Charters, you had the the Irish who rebelled against the, the British colonialism and domination in Ireland, but you also had people who were involved in the or knew about the 1848 revolutions in Europe. So there was a convergence of all these ideas and I think internationally, generally, it was still the development of capitalism. So there was the movement, particularly in Europe and, and in England, where the Industrial Revolution had commenced. It was probably you know 50 years of Industrial Revolution. There was a, a growth of the working class. And so therefore, there was also a lot of radical ideas or ideas that were to break away from the feudalism. So you had a a situation in on the gold fields, and it wasn't just in in Melbourne, but also in Sydney, part, oh, sorry, in, in New South Wales, and Queensland. A lot of demanders from overseas came specifically to mine for gold because it was um, where you could enrich yourself or you know find wealth. Most of them, as I said earlier, came from the impoverished backgrounds in uh, England, Europe, Ireland, and there were other parts, like there were some from America. Afro-Americans that were involved as well. The conditions were really terrible for the miners at Ballarat and in Bendigo. There was deep poverty there. They were also very, very fiercely harassed by the British Army and the, the local police. And the issue was about the licences. And the licences were imposed on the miners whilst the, you know, the British aristocracy and the squatters in Australia who basically uh, seized the Aboriginal land and were making huge 
profits out of it, money out of it, weren't paying the taxes. The other issue was the the fact that they didn't have a vote. The only it was only the property owners that had the vote, and the property owners were the, the big landholders. It wasn't even like small shopkeepers. There was also a lot of animosity as a result of all this to to local oppressive British administration. There was also a resistance or anger with the British generally. Also, beginnings of Australia's sovereignty and independence from Britain. So you had a situation where things were coming together and the harassment and the search for licences by the army and the and the local police became so intense and there was a lot of miners were thrown into jail, big attacks, they were physically assaulted by the police and the army. But that time already, there was probably in the previous few years, there were already forces that were organising to resist the harassment and the attacks by the police and the army, and also anger and outrage about the licences. The poor had to pay the taxes, basically, and the rich paid nothing, and also the fact that they didn't have the democratic right to vote. They were really the most important issues for the miners at that time. At that time, the demands of the of the miners were quite revolutionary. In the context of what was that Australia was emerging, only the beginnings of basically uh, of the working class in Australia, in terms of internationally in other countries, that the right to vote was quite a revolutionary demand. In the context of that period of 1854, the Eureka rebels who took up the fight for, as they called, for democratic rights and for independence, equal representation in parliament, and also demanding that, um, that the rich pay their taxes was, was pretty advanced. So you had a convergence of, of all the forces. You had terrible conditions that the miners were subjected to. And there was formation, as I said earlier, there was forma- already beginning formations of resistance to the licensed searches by the army and, and the police. The rebels or the, the miners already had a you know, a sort of an understanding amongst themselves about, you know, hiding each other when being um, attacked by the by the police, when the police and the army came searching for licences. So there's a growing solidarity amongst them. So in 1854, there, there was a sequence of events, including the burning down of a of hotel and there were spies amongst the, the rebels and the increased attacks by the state, by the police and the British Army. The rebels decided that they'll actually now pronounce or announce their organisation or, you know, their, their solidarity with each other. As a result of that, the Eureka flag emerged as a uniting force um, for the rights a fighting force, a uniting and fighting force for the rights of ordinary working people, and at that time they were miners. Women played an equally important role, even though they had been written out of history, out of all the formal history. Women don't exist, but in fact women were instrumental. The only attention that women get seems to be in official history is that they sewed up the flag, which is true and it's very good, but they were actually the women who took up the, the arms as well to defend themselves, and they already had guns and arms. That was just part of the part of that that period. Put up the Eureka flag, and under Peter Layla, um, who was the leader, and also there were other leaders like Raphael Caboni, who was an Italian, and he came from quite a sort of 
progressive, even revolutionary background in Italy and was part of the 1848 revolutions in, in Europe. They pledged solidarity to each other. And there's the famous oath, we swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend their rights and liberties. And that sort of epitomises the beginnings of Australia's fighting history, particularly amongst the working class. And they built a, a basically a barricade. And barricade just com- consisted of this, you know, of a circle with bits of timber and tree stumps and things like that. The purpose of it was to defend themselves. They were going to refuse to pay the licences and the full knowledge that they will be attacked by the police and army. So they took defensive action. Defensive action was to build a barricade, protect the miners. And obviously there were spies. There was a couple of spies amongst the miners who were passing on the information to the to the police who attacked the about two or three days later, 28th. 28th of November, 29th of November is when the barricade was put up and they swore the solidarity and allegiance to each other and raised the, the, the flag. On 3rd of December, very early in the morning, I think it was 3 o'clock in the morning, the barricade was attacked by the police and the army. At that time, many of the miners and the rebels were not actually at the barricade to defend it. Quite an important event, probably the first white resistance to British colonialism. Really, the the first uh, struggle and resistance to British colonialism was by the Aboriginal people in 1788, whose land was occupied and um, seized by the British state, the British government, the British aristocracy. So the Eureka is, is in, in many ways, it's, it's a beginning of the, of the white resistance to British colonialism. It was um, resistance to also to, to, yeah, to, to basically to British annexation and control of their lives. That was basically the Eureka, the actual stockade and the uprising. I think there were about 28 people who were killed, um, including two or three soldiers. Layla was hidden and reappeared later again. To go move forward a bit, a year or so, I think, or maybe six months, is when, which is also, I think, is very equally s- significant to the actual uprising, to the rebels' uprising, when the 28 rebels were brought to trial. Were they kept in jail all that time? They were kept in jail all that time, and they were also were subjected to horrific conditions, torture and beatings in the jail. When they were brought to trial, uh, they were being ch- they were charged with treason. In Melbourne, there were huge protests against the, the, these charges and demands that they should be released. I think in Melbourne there were ten thousand people marching in the streets, and ten thousand was pretty big for that time. There were protests all across Melbourne and obviously in Ballarat and Bendigo as well. The public opinion was so strongly supporting the the rebels, the rights of rebels, and what they stood for, what they fought for, that no jury was able to convict them and they were released. The charges were dropped and they were released. And as a consequence of that, some of the demands had eventually been recognised. But I think the two things are really significant is the support, the white support for the Eureka. I mean, quite often, well, more often they're not in the official history. It's, um, It's presented as a you know, as a group of sort of a tiny group of um, these crazy rebels who had no vision, who were just out there fighting to to seize some of the wealth for themselves. 
highly individualistic, which was really not true. And all the the real history that has come out of it, the true history, but those who were involved and those who examined it, is that this was a, a rebellion, collective rebellion against the oppressive British colonial government. Were there any Aboriginals involved in the stockade? Apparently there were. I'm not sure whether in the actual swearing of the oath, but certainly when the barricade was attacked, there were Aboriginal people that were hiding the rebels. There were also Aboriginal women who were looking after some of the children as well when that fierce fight was, was happening. So that's also an indication that there were women involved in the actual armed struggle or in the, in the resistance. There were many Chinese in the gold fields around that time. Do you know if there was any move to include them in the movement? I'm not aware of if there was any move to include them. I imagine that there would have been attempts made by some to include them. I imagine that people like Raphael Carboni, who made that wonderful pronouncements about the Eureka flag or the Southern Cross being the refuge of all the oppressed from all corners on, on earth, People like him, and there were, as I said, a couple of Afro-Americans would have been certainly not hostile to the Chinese and would probably encourage them to join. But I also know that um, there was a bit of, I don't know, there was fear of maybe of the Chinese from some of the some of the rebels. I mean, we can't glamorise and whitewash it. It's it, they were the conditions at that time. But it was very uneven, so you can't kind of say that all the diggers were racist. There were some that wanted to include and encourage the inclusion of uh, of the Chinese and Aboriginal people. I mean, there were Jews and Buddhists who were involved in this as well. And when the, they were buried, the, the soldiers and the diggers, they were buried in separate parts of the cemetery in Ballarat. Yeah, which is very telling, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Just talk about the, the years following, maybe the first, the next 10, 20, 30 years. What were the increases, the, the benefits that people got in that time? The vote they, that they won. Also, I'm not sure about the licences, but there were some changes made to the licence system. And then, of course, there's in, in 1856, two years later was the eight-hour day. There was one by, well, they're called construction workers now, but in those days they were bricklayers in Melbourne and there was a big rally and, and, a, and a march for the, the eight-hour day. And again, there was there was a, a lot of public support for it. And Australia was the first to, Australian workers was the first to win that eight-hour day. And undoubtedly, the, the spirit of Eureka, what Eureka stood for, and the achievements of Eureka had also played a big role in, in that. It's a history. It's it's our history. It's the history of and tradition of Australia's working people and it was still very fresh in their mind. It was also a period that went on to formation of unions, eighteen sixty, right through. You had the formation of the you know, the wharfies union or the seafarers, the metal workers. Uh, the textile workers. There was a, a growth of in the working class, and the forma- which resulted in the formation of unions. And again, the Eureka flag was very, very often, very frequently, was used in those in the struggles of those workers. Can you extrapolate it a bit and say, well, there were women there; they played pivotal parts. That they benefited from that from years 
later? I think that probably what where that did benefit is Australia being the first country to give women the vote. And I think that that's pretty significant as well because of that history and that tradition. And the women from Eureka were very, very outspoken, apart from women who were involved in the actual rebellion. There was in, in the actual fight against the resistance to the troops and police who attacked the barricade. There were also a lot of women, like uh, there were hotel owners, there were teachers, several other women who, just ordinary women too, they, they, were, they didn't have to be sort of, you know, women that are highly educated or, or, you know, were business women, but a lot of the ordinary women on the fields and also in Melbourne who supported the aims and the vision of Eureka and they, and they were very outspoken and that continued right up to the women getting the vote in the early 20th century. But also I think it was interesting, I was reading something a while ago about um, the formation of the textile union. There were some really militant women in that, in that union at that time who fought really hard for improvement in conditions for women. You know, women worked in, you know, sewing the factories that are being set up, nothing on the scale of in Europe, but certainly with Australia's small white population at the time, they were quite a significant significant part of workers and they were quite militant, you know, in demanding decent wages and and conditions. Let's fast forward to 2015. Who are those now involved in the spirit of Eureka? The spirit of Eureka was formed about 10, about 10 years ago, basically, to There was obviously a recognition, or there was, you know, we could see around, that a lot of the demands that the Eureka rebels had put up in 1854 and the vision that they had had not been um, recognised. So even though the vote had been achieved, at that time the, the vote was regarded as being I mean, people did think at the time that by having the vote will bring a lot of democratic rights. They'll be able, through Parliament, introduce laws that benefit ordinary workers, not just the, the rich, ordinary working people. So at that time, it was it was really significant. Also on, on the question of the taxes, I mean, the, the sort of the embryo of that struggle was about taxing the rich. 150 years later, very little has changed. I mean, yes, we've got the vote, but how much have we been able to achieve? Taxation hadn't changed. There was still the poor who pay most of the taxes and the rich corporations don't. So there was that and there was about the sovereignty, the issue of the sovereignty. Peter Fitzsimmons wrote a book recently, a book with a title that I think is really... Relevant. I think he wrote the book about two or three years ago called Eureka Unfinished Revolution. And we're saying this unfinished revolution continues today. In the last 10 years, we had been organising various activities and supporting other people's activities for basically the vision that the Eureka rebels, that Eureka rebels had put forward for a fair and just Australia. And it's also, Eureka is really important that we decided that one of the main and we're calling ourselves the spirit because it's the spirit of that of that struggle of that ba- battle that that is really has been carried on at times stronger than at other times obviously that the unity the fact that the Eureka flag is a symbol of working class people's struggles 
But it's also a symbol of unity, of uniting Australian people under their flag and not under the British flag or the flag of the ruling class. That was the purpose of Eureka. We've held some activities with speakers um, around the issues of like the taxing the rich. We've held, we've been involved in activities around the the Australia-US alliance, which is basically at the heart of this Australia's sovereignty. We've also have had um, quite a few activities on terror laws. Under the terror laws, the Eureka rebels would be defined as, t- as terrorists. The terror laws has been an important part as well of the of, of our activities. In terms of people that involved, we've got a a really wide cross-section of people. So there are lawyers like Rob Starry, Greg Barnes has been very supportive. There's Julian Burnside is one of the patrons, as is Robert Richter, Humphrey McQueen. But we've also got union people like um, Ralph Edwards. Significantly, there are a lot of union workers who support us because of that the, the symbol of what Eureka flag represents and, and the important significance of maintaining that spirit of, of Eureka. And, of course, the dinner. Okay. And so this year, it's 161-year anniversary, and our theme again is carrying on the fight for a just, democratic and sovereign Australia. The struggle continues. We try to to connect the, the struggles of the of the 1854 Eureka rebels to current struggles and current issues to really exemplify the continuation of and the continuity of that same struggle of what is ordinary people's aspirations and visions are. So this year it's the, the dinner and with two speakers. The two speakers are Greg Barnes and Greg, people might know, is a, is a barrister and former president of Australian Lawyers Alliance and Australian Republican Movement. Greg is also has is quite outspoken on the tra- on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in particular the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement, which um, enables or gives power to big corporations to sue um, sovereign governments. He's also been very active and outspoken on the anti-terror laws, on the uh, data retention laws. So he's going to speak on all these issues, including the TPP or the ISDS and its attack on democratic rights and attack on sovereignty. The theme of of his of his talk, and that's under his initiative that he suggested this theme, is uh, the Eureka spirit and how Australia has lost it. And that's, I think, a bit of concern by many people. The other speaker will be Terry Mason. Um, Terry is from New South Wales. He's an Aboriginal in the Awabakal language group, which is, I think is in the north of New South Wales. He's a senior lecturer and also chair of the National Tertiary Education Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Policy Committee. Terry's going to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the issues of sovereignty, and his position is is that this is more than a fight for justice, democracy and a fair go for all. For Aboriginal people, it is the issue of land rights. It is an issue of a treaty, and under the TPP, treaty would not be would be basically illegal. He's also going to talk about um, the resistance by the Aboriginal people to white colonisation, uh, particularly in northern New South Wales. There was there was a big a big movement by the Aboriginal people in fighting against the 
the British colonization of the of the land. The Aboriginal people say that TPP is a second wave of colonization. And obviously it'll be emceed by Kevin Brecken from the Maritime Union of Australia and Kevin is the chairperson of Spirit of Eureka. It will be held at the Eureka Hotel, which is um, Corno Victorian Church Streets in Richmond. And uh, it's from 6.30 where you can get your meal and uh, speakers start at 7.30. There'll be music and there'll be a Spirit of Eureka Award. Last year's dinner was very, very successful. We had some excellent speakers as well and it was very, very cramped. So um, we're hoping to f- to find ways to to ex- improve the, the cramped conditions. And it's the 20th of November? 20th of November, which is in about nearly two weeks' time, and it starts at 6.30. And how do you book? We would really appreciate people to RSVP or if they want to book a table. Uh, we're still taking bookings for tables. And so the mobile to book is 0423 851707 or you can email Susie Leach, S-U-Z-I-E-L-E-A-C-H, 23 at gmail.com, or you can ring 0417456001. We have got a Facebook page that um, has all the contact details as well. We encourage people to come. I think it'll be quite quite an important and significant event because uh, one of the things that we do want to discuss is for... 2016, how we address the issues of democratic rights, sovereignty and and union rights as well. Perhaps I should ask you, Shirley, to finish with the oath. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight for for our rights and liberties. It's a very moving oath. It's an oath of solidarity and uh, we think that it should be the national oath of particularly the the oath of of working people. Unfortunately, it's been lost. It's not well known. And even amongst um, the unions, the Eureka flag is not as promoted as it it used to be, which is, which, you know, when it was promoted, it it enabled and uh, unions, unite the unions together around the common aims and, you know, a a common fight. And thanks to Shirley Winton from the group Spirit of Eureka. I'll just give you one phone number if you would like to book. 0423 851 707. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. And in a couple of seconds time you'll be hearing Jonathan talking about the fight for food on his program, Food Fight. So I'll say bye for now and see you next week.